This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. This week's recommendation is Michelangelo and the Pope's Ceiling by Ross King. I've read this one a couple times, getting ready for the next podcast, and I'm now listening to it in the Audible version, just to catch anything I may have missed. It's a great read, I think one of his best books, and it really helps to illuminate the complex relationship between Pope Julius and Michelangelo. You may choose this or any other title when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. And welcome to the Renaissance, episode 17, The Bonfires of the Vanities. Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Bird. The Renaissance Podcast now has its own YouTube channel. There's only a couple of videos right now, but I plan to create video slideshows for each episode and post them over the next several months. Please look up the YouTube channel and subscribe so you can get the latest updates as they become available. Don't forget, we're taking registrations for the Italy trip, and if you sign up now, you will be assured to spot on the tour. Finally, please go by and visit our Renaissance store for some great prints of Renaissance art. Last time, we left off with the growing power of Savonarola as the prior of San Marco's convent in Florence. In the crisis that Piero is forced to deal with upon the death of his father, as the French king invades Italy and Florence stands alone opposing them. In the hopes of imitating his father and his actions to secure peace with Naples, Piero heads to the French camp without informing the Sonoria. But, unlike King Ferrante, Charles was unimpressed by this gesture. Seeing it as a sign of weakness, he treats Piero with contempt. In fact, the entire French camp treats Piero with contempt, even the commoners and the common soldiers. Piero ultimately negotiates a humiliating peace with the King of France granting the king of France lordship over Florence and for all intents making Piero his vassal. While this is going on, the Sonoria rallies an army to meet King Charles. Alarmed by Piero's flight, they look to defend the city from the coming French invasion. While in the French camp, Piero hears of this and rides back to the Florentine army to announce the new treaty, but he finds few allies in Florence. In fact, insults were hurled at him as he approached the Sonoria, and he was convinced to return to the palace before the crowd grew too unruly. Slowly, crowds gathered round the Palazzo Medici that he shared with his brother, Cardinal Giovanni. Mostly made up of lower classes who were feeling the widening gap between the rich and poor most acutely, 
they began shouting for the downfall of the Medici. An armed group of Medici supporters, roused by Cardinal Giovanni, confronted the mob. It seemed that bloodshed was inevitable, but they soon retreated inside the Palazzo Medici. Piero's situation was becoming increasingly desperate. The crowd continued to grow through the night, and at one point they spotted Giovanni praying in front of the window. This seems to elicit a sympathetic response from the crowd, who still thought highly of Giovanni despite their ill feelings towards his brother. However, this public act of piety seems suspicious. Why would he not pray privately in the palace, or better yet, in the chapel within the grounds of the palace? It seems that it was merely to gain the sympathy of the crowd. Perhaps it was to buy time for Piero to flee the palace. Piero grabbed much of his father's wealth that he could carry, and with a few loyal supporters, slipped out of the city and made his way for Venice. Giovanni would follow his brothers a few days later, but not without grabbing the collection of jewels his father had gathered. This would support him and his brother over the coming years and help fund their efforts to regain control of Florence. The Sonoria was outraged with Piero, and the Medici family were formally banished and their property confiscated. Their cousin, Lorenzo Piero Francesca, no longer under house arrest, changed his name to Popolano, which means of the people, in order to separate himself from the Medicis and escape the wrath of the people of Florence. The Medici palace itself was being prepared for the king of France, per the agreement that, per the agreement with Piero, but as soon as it was apparent that the Medici had fled, it was ransacked by the Florentines. The Medici banks were seized, along with any other property that was held within the city. Charles continued his march through Florentine territory, taking Pisa and declaring it liberated. In order to obtain some sort of peace and hold the king to some of the agreement that he had made with Piero, the Sonoria sent a delegation to meet King Charles. Among the ambassadors was none other than Savonarola. Savonarola greeted Charles not as a conqueror, but as a liberator sent by God. He told the king, Thou hast come as a minister of God, the minister of justice. We receive thee with joyful hearts and a glad countenance. We hope that by thee, Jehovah will abase the pride of the proud, will exalt the humility of the humble, will crush vice, exalt virtue, make straight all that is crooked, renew the old, reform all that is deformed. Come then, glad, secure, triumphant, since he who sent you forth triumphed upon the cross for our salvation. Charles was taken with Savonarola. He is said to have stayed up late with Savonarola, asking him about the future of his kingdom, his heirs, and his conquest. Despite the alliance forged by Savonarola and Charles, the king intended to enter the city as a conqueror, not as an ally. He entered the city through the gates of Porto San Ferliano in a suit of gilt armor. His Swiss mercenaries marched in front of him. He had the best trained army in Europe, and everyone knew it. At the time, his army was made up of French, Swiss, Germans, Scots, and all manner of European mercenaries. The Florentines had never seen so many different nationalities in one place. On the same day that Charles entered the city, Savonarola's lifelong friend, Pico della Mirandola, died mysteriously, along with another friend, Poliziano. 
Both men had maintained contact with both Savonarola and the Medici court, being good friends of Lorenzo. They were, in fact, favorites of Lorenzo de' Medici, but after Lorenzo's death, many, including Piero de' Medici, feared that they had come under the influence of Savonarola. They were, after all, responsible for convincing Lorenzo to bring the monk to Florence and continued to defend him against his enemies. At this crucial time, Savonarola lost his two most loyal advocates among the nobles and his dearest friends. Pico della Mirandola was responsible for publishing translations of Jewish mystic texts like the Kabbalah and ancient Egyptian and Chaldean manuscripts. Under the influence of Savonarola, however, he destroyed his own work. Their deaths were mysterious, but many, including Savonarola, suspected poison. The most likely suspect was Piero de' Medici himself, who felt their loyalty lay with Savonarola rather than the heir of Lorenzo. Until recently, it was impossible to confirm the manner of their death. However, both bodies have been exhumed and modern forensics have indeed confirmed that they were poisoned. Extremely high levels of mercury and lead were found in their remains. Savonarola would have to face these new challenges without the friendship of Poliziano and Mirandola, both of whom were equal to Savonarola's considerable intellect. Charles stayed at the Medici Palace, but when the agreed time had come for him to continue his campaign against Naples, and eventually Rome, he refused to leave. Instead, he tried to extort more money and a pledge of troops from Florence. The Sonoria assured him they had nothing to give. Without Pisa, they lost a serious link to their trading partners throughout Europe. No trading, no money. This discussion continued until Charles resolved to sack Florence before heading on. The Sonoria begged Savonarola for help. The story goes he walked into the palace, asked to see the king, and without waiting for permission, he walked into his room and demanded that he remember God's purposes for him as God's instrument. To sack Florence would subvert this purpose. Charles seemed unmoved, but then Savonarola reminded him about the prophecies and that Charles would pay a dear price if he sacked God's city and disobeyed the will of God himself. Charles appeared to show genuine concern, and he respected the prophecies of Savonarola. However, when the time came to sign the treaty, the Florentines had entered a lower amount than was originally agreed upon. Upon seeing this, the king renews his threat to sack the city. But it's the defiance of Capone. Now, Capone was a lifelong friend of the king. He was an ambassador for Florence to France. And as the king began to make his threats, Capone says, Sound your trumpets, and we will ring our bells. Charles knew that despite the well-trained army and numerous troops he had in the city, it would be foolhardy to challenge the Florentines to a street-to-street fight within their own city walls. With every citizen potentially under arms, his men would be outnumbered and pinned down, unable to march on to his true objective. With this, the king makes a joke and signs the treaty, and within a few days he departs Florence heading for Rome. Upon the departure of King Charles, Savonarola's supporters made it abundantly clear that it was Savonarola who was the real power in the city. Though he was a foreigner and could hold no elected office, he could wield a tremendous amount of influence behind the scenes. And so began Savonarola's City of God. Initially, he ordered restraint and that no vengeance was to be meted out to the supporters of the Medici. But now, 
he called for the deaths of all those who supported Piero. God had called for a reform of the church and the state, and Savonarola would be this instrument. His visions told him as much. Charles met little resistance as he marched through Italy, but slowly the Italians were beginning to organize. Even Ludovico Sforza began to question the wisdom of allowing Charles to invade Italy. With the Pope at its head, a new alliance was formed to challenge the French. It would be known as the Holy League. Made up of Milan, Naples, Venice, and the Papal Army, they hoped to drive Charles from Italian soil. Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander, bought his office from the College of Cardinals, overcoming his main competition, Giuliano della Rovere, for the office. Della Rovere fled knowing that the Pope would likely have him assassinated. He sought the help of Borgia's adversary, the King of France. Borgia was everything Savonarola preached against. He was a glutton who openly acknowledged his illegitimate children, even allowing them to live in the Vatican apartments. He was known for his lustful appetites and kept several mistresses and concubines. It was even rumored that he had a long-standing affair with his daughter Lucrezia. This is unsubstantiated, and it is dismissed by many modern historians, but it is accepted that he poisoned her husband so that he could have her remarry to a more advantageous match. Despite Savonarola's calls for reform, he never mentioned the Pope by name, a fact that Alexander was keenly aware of. This allowed Alexander to ignore many of the sermons of Savonarola. The vices of Pope Alexander were the perfect example of the abuses of the church that Savonarola referenced in his sermons, But by not mentioning the Pope by name, the door was left open for negotiations. Alexander hoped for an alliance with Florence, and was therefore reluctant to censure Savonarola, which would keep Florence out of the Holy League. The newly formed Holy League finally met the French in battle at the Taro River in 1495. The assembled Italian mercenaries were outmatched by the hard-fighting French troops. It would be considered a French victory, but so costly that Charles and his troops were forced to leave Italy and return to their homes in France. Savonarola had kept Florence neutral. This so annoyed the Pope that he requested the presence of Savonarola in Rome. Wary of Pope Alexander, Savonarola declined, citing ill health as the main reason he was unable to leave Florence. It is likely had he gone to Rome... Savonarola would have been assassinated. Already, attempts were being made upon his life by supporters of Piero de' Medici and other leaders in Europe who feared the power of this friar who questioned the authority of the church and the nobility. With the Savonarolan party, known as the Pagnone, in full control of the city, he took on his greatest task, the moral reform of its citizens. It is ironic that under Savonarola, Florence sees the most republican form of government it has had since the Medici, but yet, led by the friar from the pulpit, they instituted the strictest moral laws seen in Italy. All manner of vices were worthy of the death penalty, usury, the lending of money for interest, adultery, gluttony, any kind of display of wealth, and Savonarola's most hated sin, sodomy. One of the most hated celebrations Savonarola wished to stamp out was Carnivale. This is the traditional festival that marks the last day before Lent, when fasting would begin before Easter. The celebration corresponds roughly with Mardi Gras in New Orleans, 
And in Florence, it had gotten out of hand, and many of the leading nobles wished to curb some of the worst behaviors. Savonarola decided the new initiates to the Catholic Church would be the perfect tool to end the festivities of Carnivale. These were mostly boys, 12 to 15, who would be enrolled in catechism classes preparing for confirmation on Easter. Their impressionable young minds could be molded by Savonarola and his followers and sent out to crack down on the vices in the street. Initially, they went out preaching the gospel, collecting alms for the poor, but the next year, they began collecting luxuries and vanities, gambling items, other things of that nature, but some of these might include mirrors, paintings, or statues, or games of any kind. These luxuries would be piled up in levels corresponding with the seven levels of hell and set on fire. Botticelli and Fra Bartolomeo both participated and heaped their own works on the bonfire. As time went on, the boys became more and more hostile, harassing anyone who dressed immodestly or wore any kind of jewelry and who refused to give up their vanities. They set up roadblocks to prevent people from passing until they gave up any of their luxuries. The bonfires themselves took on an increasingly threatening tone, with book burnings being added to the vanities. Florence was hit with several hard winters and wet springs wiping out their crops. Famine would soon take hold, and with famine came rumors of the plague. Soon, the dreaded Black Death made an appearance in the slums as peasants from the countryside sought refuge in the city. With Florence's access to her ports cut off by her enemies, the Sonoria was unable to seek supplies to alleviate the famine. Savonarola showed little concern for this and directed his efforts at reforming the morals of the people. The famine, he said, was God's retribution for the Sodomites living in the city. The most ardent of Savonarola's supporters, the Piagnone, pushed harder and harder for moral reforms. Things were finally coming to a head when a member of Piero de' Medici's inner circle was captured outside the city walls. He had fled Piero, who was becoming increasingly paranoid, and had made an attempt on his life. He hoped to receive a pardon from the Sonoria, but rather he received the Strapata. The Strapata was a Florentine specialty. It was a method of torture where the victim's hands are tied behind their back, They are then lifted from their wrist and dropped. This usually dislocates the shoulders. There's a doctor on site who will put them back in the socket so the victim may be tortured once again. In the process of this torture, he named several prominent Florentine citizens as supporters of the Medici. In this heightened state of anxiety, it was determined that a trial must be held in order to put them to death. They were rounded up, and put in the Bargello, where they were all tortured. Screams were heard for hours into the night as the Inquisitors tried to extract information from the men. Since it was not possible to call the entire council due to the fact that most of the Sonoria had fled the city because of the plague and the heat, they called the smaller council. None of the alleged conspirators were allowed to attend their own trial, nor were they allowed to provide a defense. Even their lawyers were prevented from attending. In a matter of hours, it was decided that all must die. 
Savonarola was consulted about this, and he made the pretense of being neutral, but his actions made clear that they would receive the death penalty. By four in the morning, all five were dead, without any proof of their guilt. This rocked the city who lined up before dawn to watch the mournful procession of bodies as they were brought back to their families. This incident marked a turning point for Savonarola and where he begins losing control of the city. Though his supporters were still numerous, many of the Medici supporters, as well as more secular members of the Sonoria, were distancing themselves from Savonarola. With the executions, many Florentines wondered if these leaders could be summarily executed without a trial, what law would protect them? Many of the very poor had also begun to revolt against the bonfires. The sight of so many luxuries going up in smoke infuriated them when they could have been sold to help buy food to alleviate the famine. Supporters of the Medici, as well as other opponents of Savonarola, created an alliance and were elected into the Sonoria. Even some of his supporters began to question his feud with Pope Alexander and his lack of concern about the famine. Rather than taming Savonarola, this only emboldened him, and he began to openly preach against the Pope, making veiled references to concubines in the Vatican. This was the last straw for Pope Alexander, and he officially excommunicated Savonarola. The orders were sent to the loyal churches in Florence, Santa Maria Novella and Santa Croce, where the priest dutifully carried out the ritual, symbolizing his separation from the church and from God with the final snuffing out of a candle. The Pope went even further. Not only was Savonarola barred from preaching, but anyone who attended would be excommunicated as well. He held out the threat that the entire city of Florence could be excommunicated from the church. The Sonoria was caught in a precarious situation. To openly oppose Savonarola would incite a civil war, but siding with him would draw the ire of the Pope who is likely to assemble a military force to move against the city. This instability may have been exactly what Pope Alexander had in mind. A weakened Florence would be an easy target for the Pope's armies. The official course of action for the Sonoria was to do nothing. Savonarola gave one final sermon where he tells his congregation that he who excommunicates me excommunicates God. He then takes the tone of a martyr, knowing that his death is coming before he retires from preaching to continue working on his political writings. The duty of preaching falls to his second-in-command, Fra Domenico, who acts as Savonarola's mouthpiece to the Florentine people for the next coming weeks. A rival Franciscan friar begins preaching against Savonarola, calling him a false prophet and a charlatan. He offers that if Savonarola was indeed a prophet, he should prove this by an ordeal or a trial by fire. The Franciscan goes further, offering that he would walk through fire, knowing he will be consumed, but that it would prove that Savonarola was indeed a heretic and a false prophet. Despite Savonarola's hearkening back to a medieval sensibility, he viewed these sorts of trials as superstition. They were once very common in the Middle Ages, but have not taken place in Florence for over 400 years. It's likely that the Franciscans never believed that Savonarola would accept such a challenge, and that if he did, he would surely be killed. Either way, he would be discredited, 
there's evidence that this may have even been supported by the Sonoria. In walks Fra Domenico. He hardly accepts the challenge on behalf of Savonarola, despite Savonarola's objections. Savonarola knew that he could not withdraw, and that he must therefore go through the trial by fire. The date was set for April 7, 1498, in the Piazza Sonoria. In the middle of the square, two long, elevated piers were raised, with hot coals being fed into them. The Franciscans continued to delay over procedural details. Who should walk through the fire? How should they walk through the fire? They pointed out that Savonarola was challenged, not Fra Domenico, who had offered to walk in Savonarola's stead. Savonarola agreed that he would go personally. He was then forced to strip, lest his robes were bewitched. They then asked him to remove the cross. The friar carried the host with him to protect him, but the Franciscans claimed this was blasphemy to bring the Lord's body into the flames. The Piazza Sonoria was filled to capacity, and the city officials blocked the streets leading into it so that no one else could enter or leave. The common people showed they were eager to see the spectacle of a man being burned alive. Some of the Piagnoni were praying for a miracle to save Savonarola, but many of the nobles were horrified at the spectacle to take place in Florence of all places, the city that sparked the Renaissance. Finally, the Sonoria intervened and all parties were called into the Palazzo Sonoria to discuss who had authority to conduct the trial by fire, the civil authorities or the church. In the hours that followed, the crowd became restless, convinced this was a plot to prevent them from having their bloody spectacle. While the meeting was going on, a torrential downpour flooded the piazza. Some saw this as a sign of God's displeasure. The rest of the crowd became angry that the event was so long delayed, they began to riot in the square. The Sonorius troops had to come quell the small riot, and Savonarola's followers hurriedly escorted him back to San Marcos. In the night, a crowd began gathering around the convent of San Marco, shouting for the death of Savonarola on the account of being a charlatan. The prior went to his cell to pray. Unbeknownst to him, Unbeknownst to him, his monks had secretly been preparing for the defense of the monastery and had stockpiled an arsenal inside the cloister. The monks, along with a handful of supporters, began manning the walls with swords, arquebuses, and cannons. After midnight, the crowd began to turn violent and armed with weapons began firing on the monastery. They stormed the gates of the convent, but cannon shots sprayed through the crowd, pushing them back. The monks were prepared to hold their ground at the main gate as it fell. The bells of the monastery had been tolling most of the night, a signal for help, but they were ignored by the Sonoria until the moment the crowd breached the outer wall. Savonarola was horrified at the carnage caused by his own monks, and he ordered them to stand down, and he, along with Fra Domenico, surrendered to the Florentine authorities. Fra Silvestra, who was a close confidant of Savonarola, was picked up the next day. The three were hauled into the Palazzo Sonoria for questioning. Questioning during this time meant torture. As we mentioned earlier, the favored Florentine method was the strapata. It's believed that Savonarola was put to the strapata between four and fourteen times. His shoulders were dislocated, and he finally agreed to confess to treason. 
However, even with doctoring his confession, the Sonoria could not sentence him to death for treason. There wasn't enough evidence. None of his actions amounted to treason against the city, despite how hard they tried to manipulate his confession. They were running out of time, for Pope Alexander heard of Savonarola's arrest and demanded that he be sent to Rome for trial. This, of course, would be unacceptable to the Florentines, who wished to prevent the Pope from learning any Florentine secrets while Savonarola was being tortured. He was sent for another round of torture, along with his two companions. Still, he admitted to nothing that would amount to treason against the state, and they did not have the authority to try him for heresy. Another letter arrived from the Pope, demanding Savonarola. This time the Sonoria responded that the church could try him, but it must be in Florence, and his execution must be public in Florence, so it could be an example to his Piagnoni sympathizers. Somewhat shocked, the Sonoria received a letter that the Pope agreed, and he sent a delegation to Florence to try Savonarola. The commission was led by Cardinal Ciccone, a skilled inquisitor who arrived on May 19th. The cardinal was given a young prostitute by the Sonoria as a welcome present, and the trial would begin the following day. Savonarola was asked to admit his prophecies did not come from God, but for his own desire for glory. He held fast, but when the strapata was brought out, he fell to the floor begging for mercy, agreeing that they were not from God. He refused to admit that he had renounced God and was once more subjected to the strapata. Savonarola exclaimed, Help me, Jesus! Ciccone continued to apply the strapata among Savonarola's cries of help. Why Ciccone repeatedly submitted him to the strapata is a mystery. One report states that he placed hot coals under Savonarola's feet as he hung him from his wrist. The obvious answer is Ciccone enjoyed his job, a sort of sadism. But there are others who suggest that he actually wanted to be sure he had an honest confession and that he was not executing a man of God. Apparently, like Lorenzo and others, he felt something holy about Savonarola that unnerved him, and despite the charges against him, was unsure of his guilt. Utterly broken, he was asked to sign his own confession. This was impossible because the strapata had permanently dislocated his shoulders, and he was in considerable pain, so it was signed for him. There are portions of the confession, as with the Florentine confession, that are obvious fabrications and added after his death. The verdict was decided, and the three friars would die. Interestingly, the death warrant arrived from the Pope prior to the conviction. They would be hanged and then burned on the very spot where the trial by fire was to have taken place. The gibbet was placed to accommodate the three men, but it looked like a cross, and rumors spread that Savonarola was going to be crucified like the Savior. The gibbet's arms were shortened to appear less cross-like. On May 23rd, the three men were led to a ladder that took them to the top of the gibbet. Fra Silvestra was pushed off the ladder, but the rope was too short, and it failed to break his neck. He was strangling, muttering, Yesu. A spectator leapt forth and threw a torch into the bundle of sticks under Fra Silvestro before the executioner had a chance to do so. Fra Domenico gladly accepted his death and it is said that he smiled as he jumped off the ladder. Savonarola was the last, 
and like Frost of Estra, he did not die instantly, but he was strangled and suffered as the guards lit the fire beneath him. As the flames licked his body, wind from the conflagration caused his arm, broken and useless from the strapata, to raise up as though he was giving a blessing. This startled the crowd and even the executioners, and one can imagine that the cardinals had a moment of fear and wondered if they had actually just executed a saint. The executioners soon beat the body with sticks, and the crowd threw stones as the bodies hanged from their nooses. Guards were placed to stand watch over the fire to prevent any of the Pagnone from collecting relics. It was a gruesome scene as limbs burned through and fell into the fire. Even the ropes burned, but the iron chains held their charred torsos to the main post of the gibbet. To prevent any possibility of relics, the gibbet itself was pushed into the fire so it could be consumed by the fire. After the fire, the ashes were swept up and taken to the Ponte Vecchio and dumped into the Arno River. Pope Alexander would help to restore Medici power, but it would not last. Under Savonarola, the people had become accustomed to self-government. Savonarola and the Medici expulsion had paved the way for a gifted new class of administrators like Machiavelli. Cardinal Giovanni, Lorenzo's son, would eventually take the city in 1512 using military force. Florence would again expel the Medicis in 1527. In 1532, the Republic was abolished permanently. Pope Clement, also a Medici, made Florence a hereditary dukedom. The Medici would hold the title until 1737 when their line became extinct. Giovanni would be called back to Rome shortly after conquering Florence in 1512 because Julius II had just died. He was summoned for a papal enclave. He would then be elected Pope Leo X. This is the same Leo X that would excommunicate Luther. The connections between Giovanni, Savonarola, and Martin Luther are intriguing. Had Giovanni handled things differently in either case, the course of history might have been very different. Perhaps his history with Savonarola affected his dealings with Martin Luther. When I opened in episode 16, I mentioned that I was conflicted about Savonarola. I would say that after working through so much of his history, I'm even more so. Many of his edicts against art and, well, fun of any kind go too far, but he was a much-needed social reformer. Also, the manner of his death and the injustice of his execution make him one of the more sympathetic characters of Renaissance history. Savonarola would influence Michelangelo for the rest of his life, as well as Botticelli, but he would also influence Machiavelli and later John Locke. Of course, their ideas of government would become the foundation of most of the Western democracies of Europe and America, and we can thank Savonarola for the beginnings of that. As we finish Savonarola, we'll begin looking to the work of Michelangelo, Leonardo, and Raphael. If you remember way back to the beginning of the podcast in July, I said we would finish with these artists. Well, here we are, and according to the schedule I've laid out, we're not even halfway through. After the big three, I'd like to explore the work of Bermonti, one of Michelangelo's competitors and the architect of St. Peter's Basilica, as well as Vasari, the artist who wrote down so much of the art history that we have today. After Vasari, we'll finish up the Italian High Renaissance. My plan then is to shift gears, and we're going to head to Germany and the Low Countries, where we'll explore the artist of the Northern Renaissance and the developments there. 
This will actually bring us back to Italy, but this time to Venice, where we will look at Giorgione and Titian, and finally, we will look at the work of the Mannerist. The podcast will end with the work of El Greco, I'm sure this time. By my calculation, though, that gives us 30 to 40 more episodes to go. So if you're enjoying the podcast, have no fear. I think we have about two more years of the Renaissance left. I expect we may run through a second tour of Italy before we ever get to the end point. Speaking of the Italy tour, I've updated some of the information on the website, and I've already have some people signed up. The space is limited, and it is on a first-come, first-served basis. So if you're considering the trip, please take a look, and remember, you can go ahead and sign up today. Join us next week as we begin discussing the life and the work of Michelangelo.